are back in 1 John chapter number 1. We're going to finish up what we started last week. And so just by way of review, for those that maybe weren't here last week, or uh, just again to refresh our memory for all of us, uh, we said last week that as we look at 1 John, John is the apostle uh, we would call him the Apostle of Love. He, that's the main subject that he focuses on uh, throughout the New Testament. 20% of all the times that we find the word love in the New Testament occur in one of the books that John wrote. And 1 John, the book that we are studying right now, has more, uh, we find the word love more times in 1 John than in any other book of the Bible except for the book of Psalms. And so John talks a lot about love, and that's why we're looking for it uh, here. Uh, we said that there are really three relationships or three uh, interactions of love that we're going to focus on that John talks about. The first one is God's love for us, and that's the first thing on your, your notes, your handout, if you have a new one. Uh, God's love for us. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. We said we're also going to look at our love for Him because He first loved us, therefore we love Him. And we'll see that here in the weeks to come. And then lastly, because we understand God's love for us and we love Him, then that love is then directed towards others, our love for others. And, and so, so important there. So we started looking at 1 John chapter number 1. So let's just kind of review our memories uh, for what we read there. The Bible says, this is John again talking. He's starting off this epistle. He's writing to churches that are dealing with some false doctrines, so he's going he's gonna to deal with correcting that, but the Holy Spirit's going to use him to talk about love at the same time. And this is how he begins. He says, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness..." Whoops. Uh, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy might be full. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right into things today. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to join together today. We thank you, Lord, as we read again in 1 John and think about your love for us. And uh, Father, the, the greatest display of love in Jesus on a cross, uh, a love for sinners, a love for those uh, who were not looking for you, a love for those who weren't thinking about you, a love for those that were your enemies and you loved us. And so God, I pray that we would please although we'll never completely understand the height and breadth and width and depth of your love, God, I pray that we would at least get a little bit more understanding about it, a little bit uh, more of an appreciation for it, that we would be able to set aside uh, the way we've thought about you in the past and, and, and our preconceived ideas about your love for us, and, and we would, Lord, be able to receive uh, brand new, receive uh, completely fresh, your love and an understanding of your love for us from what your word says. I pray that you please uh, continue to speak to us in this time in your name. Amen. So we said that uh, John is delivering a message about God's love. And John is establishing here in these first four verses why he is able to give this message. Uh, he's able to give this message about God's love because he has personal experience with it. Personal experience with 
Jesus, personal experience uh, with that relationship that uh, he's had uh, with Christ. Uh, He says, look back at it, he says uh, in verse number one, that which is from the beginning. And so he starts uh, very clearly, we know from his writings in John, the book of John, John 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we know that he's referring to Jesus here. And so he's talking about from the beginning, Jesus that existed before time and before space, before creation, at the start of all that is. But I think John is also saying for you and I that he's talking about Jesus, that which was from the beginning, from the beginning of our awareness of him. When you just first became aware of Jesus, he was there. Uh, When you first knew who Jesus was, when you first had an idea that maybe I should... Maybe I should pursue Jesus. Maybe I should choose Jesus. He was already there. Uh, that which was from the beginning. Uh, when, when you just began to understand uh, how much He loves you, He's already there. He was there. That which was from the beginning. John says that which was from the beginning. Jesus, which we've heard about. So John begins to use these, these physical senses, these physical ways to interact with Jesus to say that he's had experience, that he's had interaction with Jesus. And he says, that which we have heard. He said, when I had only heard of him, the Bible says, by the hearing of mine ears. When, when I've only heard about it, you know, when you hear something, you don't have to necessarily see it to hear it. Uh, it can be way off in the distance. It can be in another part of your house. It could be in another part of a building. Uh, it could be down the road a ways. You may not be able to see it, but you can hear it. It's, it's just something becoming familiar. The initial information is being processed. And so John said, at the beginning of our relationship, when it was just starting, Jesus was there. That which we have heard, that which we have seen. And so now we're getting a little bit more experience. We're getting a little closer Uh, You may not be able to see it when you hear it, but now we're moving to where it's within view. He's within view. He's right there in front of us. We we see Him now. We're actually seeing and witnessing the live event. And then He takes it a step further. He said, "We've, we've heard about Him. We've seen Him. Now we've looked upon Him. So now, now not, I just see Him from the distance. You know, I see somebody walking across the parking lot, or I see someone on the other side of church, or I see someone uh, walking down the road. Uh, I see them, but now I'm looking upon Him. Now we're, now we're right up close and personal. Now, now we're, we're studying. We're, we're, we're right in front. We're, we're looking upon, not just a passing glance or a faraway glimpse, but a good, hard look, an examination, a study, a pursuit, a seeking for, and a longing after. And so John said, we've experienced Jesus, that which was from the beginning, when He was right at the start of when we were looking for Him. He was there. We've heard about Him. We've seen Him. He's getting closer. We're learning more about Him. We're looking upon Him. We're, we're wanting. We're hungry for Him. We're pursuing Him. And then he says, and our hands have handled. Now, now we're verifying Him by contact. Now, now, now we're not just looking upon Him. We're not just kind of you know, close. We're but maybe not right next to him. Now, now we're right next to him. Now, now we can hold on to him. Now we've got. Now he's so real that we can grab onto him. You know, it's it's like the disciples when Jesus rose from the dead, when they were able to touch his hands and put his hand, put their hands in his side. You know, like Job said, "I know my Redeemer liveth," because we've been able to handle. And John said, "We've experienced that." And he says at the end, and again, kind of going back to what he says at the beginning, from the beginning, that which was from the beginning, Jesus from the beginning, the Word, he 
brings it back to that at the end of verse 1, the word of life, the living word, the vital word, the word of energy and excitement of joy and passion of fulfillment and satisfaction of liveliness and zeal. John says we've experienced Jesus. I've experienced Jesus. And because of that, I can bring this message of God's love to you. We said that as we look at John's message, we know God's love because we see it in Jesus. We know God's love because we see it in Jesus. He's the personification of God's love. He is the embodiment of God's love. We see it in Jesus. And I think, again, we mentioned this last week, but John is bringing a message of what he's seen and heard, of what he knows about Jesus, and because of that, he's bringing a true, uh, a true understanding of God's love. And if someone were to ask you, based upon your experience with Jesus, what you've seen and heard, what you've looked upon, what you've handled, what kind of a message would yours be about God's love for you? You know, uh, we asked this last week, who is the Jesus that you know? Who is the Jesus that you know? What, What would your message be like? John is bringing a message about God's love because he is completely convinced that God loves him, that Jesus loves him. When John says, again, when he sings, Jesus loves me, this I know, then he's completely convinced of that. You know, we, we said last week, but, but John uh, it refers to himself in the book of John, not by name, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like he says, folks, you don't even worry about my name. Just know that Jesus loves me. Don't even worry about who I am. Just know that God's loving. That means more to me than anything else that I could say to you, the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know God's love because we see it in Jesus. And John refers to Jesus at the end of verse number one as the word of life. And so today we see God's love through Jesus in God's word. If you want to know whether or not God loves you or how God loves you, don't look at me. If you want to know how God loves you and whether or not God loves you, uh, don't look at another spiritual leader. Don't look at another person. You want to know how God loves you and whether or not He loves you? This is where you look. This is, this is Jesus, the Word of life, the personification, the embodiment of God's love. And so we look here to find out whether or not God loves us. We must view God through the complete lens of Scripture and not just our view of others or our apparent understanding of one passage. Because it can be very easy to look at some passages in the Bible and think, well, that doesn't look like a very loving God. And the devil can use that to, uh, to, to, to get us off track and, and get us confused about whether or not God loves us. So we need to, to look at the entire Scripture. Uh, we, we see in Scripture that at the center of God's heart is His love. At the center of God's heart is His love. It's not that God is... Well, we'll get into that in just a minute. But at the center of God's heart is His love. Can I be real transparent with all of you? My number one prayer, my heart for, for our church, but specifically for all of you that are in here, my heart is that you would know that God is real, first of all, and that you would know that God loves you, and that you would know that God loves you based upon God's word, not, not how we understand it, not how other people would tell us, not how we perceive it, but you would understand truly how God loves you because of his word. That, that's my heart for you. I want you to know God and I want you to know that He loves you. And, I'm, and then I want you to love God because of that. 
That's my heart for you. That's, that's my number one prayer for everybody in this class and, and for everybody in our ministry and for everybody in our church. I want you to know God and I want you to know that God loves you. And so here for the rest of the time, uh, we're going to take just a few moments and, and we're going to look at what God's Word says about the heart of God. We're going to start as we look at all we need to know about love, we've got to look at where love comes from. We've got to look at the source of love. We've got to look at the perfect love for us. And we've got to look at where we're going to find it, and that's from God's Word. And so uh, I've put on the back of our notes, or if you're using the digital notes, I've got a list of verses. We're going to go through as many of these as we can. And I would encourage you uh, just to write something about God's heart next to each one of these, and keep this with you. Uh, if you need one of these still and you want one to get one of these or if you want to just make a note in your, on your phone or something, something that you can reference, something that you can go back to. When you wonder, does God love me? Go back to this because this is truth. This is unchanging. I don't want to give you my opinion. I'm not going to give you my, my thoughts. I'm not going to give you what I've experienced. And yes, a lot of this is testimony, but I want to give you truth. And so I'd encourage you just to write something that you take away. Maybe it's just what the verse says about God's heart. But I would encourage you to do that. So let's begin in Exodus. Uh, look at Exodus chapter number 34 and verse number 6. Exodus chapter 34 and verse number 6. And we're going to start, we're going to go through these verses just as they appear in the Bible. <coughs> but I think it's fitting that we start in Exodus because I think... We can get the false idea that if you want to look to see if God loves you or not, you have to only look at the New Testament. You have to only look at verses in the New Testament. That if you go to verses in the Old Testament to find out about God, that it's all judgment, that it's all justice, that it's all the wrath of God, that it's all the anger of God, and that cannot be farther from the truth. You realize when you read in your Bible and it goes from Malachi to Matthew that God did not change? It's still the same God. And so as we look in Exodus, we find the same heart of God that we find in 1 John. We find him in Exodus. And so look at Exodus chapter number 34. And look at verse number 6. The Bible says, And the Lord passed by him, that's talking about Moses, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Verse number 7, I don't have it for the screen, but it says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgressions and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children and upon the third and to the fourth generation. What does this verse say about God? It says that He's merciful. It says that He's gracious. It says that He's long-suffering. It says that He's abundant in grace and truth and that He keeps mercy for a thousand generations, that He's forgiving. Uh, you, you read this, this story, Exodus 34 comes after Exodus 33, uh, apparently. Uh, but in this story, Moses, is, it's, it's right after he's had some issues, many, one of many issues with the children of Israel, and Moses is ready to quit. God's ready to quit, or at least that's what he tells Moses. God's ready to completely wipe the children of Israel off the map. I mean, just destroy them all. And he wants to send Moses into the promised land all by himself, and he's going to start a brand new nation with just Moses. And Moses says, hold on a minute, God, you can't do that. What are all the nations going to think if you brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and did all these miracles and signs and wonders, and then you just wipe them off the map? They're going to be talking about that you couldn't get them to the promised land. And obviously God knew that, but he wanted to hear that from Moses. And then Moses says, God, I want 
to see your glory. I want to see your glory. Uh, in, if you've got your Bibles, look at chapter 33. Exodus 33 and verse number 18. Moses and, and God are having a long conversation here. And so it's, it's just, an, I love this chapter of the Bible. Such a wonderful story. But look at verse number 18. This is Moses. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. So the glory of God is all that God is. The glory of God is his splendor. The glory of God is his majesty. The glory of God is what makes God God. Moses says, God, I want to see you as you are. And look how God responds. I love this. And he, God, said, I will make all my what? Goodness pass before thee. Moses said, God, I want to see all that you are. I want to see your glory. And God says, okay, you'll see it. I'll make my goodness pass before you. If we were to use one word to describe God, many times it would not be goodness. In our own feeble attempts to describe God, if we wanted to know the, the might and splendor and, and glory and majesty of God, we say God would come by in a thundercloud and you know, He'd be striking people down with, with lightning bolts and, and everything that God is. God, I will make my judgment pass before thee. I'll make my justice pass before thee. I'll make my wrath pass before thee. But God says, I'm going to make my goodness pass before thee. I want you to know who I am because it's my goodness. God does not respond with His judgment or wrath. He makes His goodness pass before Him. When we ask God, listen, if you were to ask God, God, who are you? Who are you? This is how God would respond. You ask God, God, who are you? Describe yourself to me, God. This is how God responds. Because the first thing that God says when He describes Himself to Moses in verse number 6, after He says His name, the Lord Jehovah, uh, the Lord God, Jehovah God, how does He describe Himself? Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy. The first words out of His mouth after His name are that He's merciful and gracious. This is the God that we serve. This is God. He says He's long-suffering. That literally means that God is long-nosed. Long-nosed. You've you seen a bull, uh, maybe a bullfight or in a rodeo sometime, and that bull is just snorting and pawing at the ground, and he's angry at everything, and he's ready to charge and just take out anything that's in his path. We would call that short-nosed. That bull is short-nosed. God is long-nosed. It means that it's going to take a whole lot to get God stirred up. You realize that God's finger is not on the trigger? God's, God's not, he, he doesn't have a quiver full of lightning bolts and His hands on Him just waiting to take it out on somebody. That's not God. God's finger is not on the trigger. Trigger. Uh, God, is, God is not, uh, you know, think about this, okay? The Bible say, says that God is provoked to anger, but not to love. God is provoked to anger. Yes, God does get angry, but it says He has to be provoked. It means it takes an awful lot to get God angry. It takes God a, a whole lot to get to the point because that's not, that's not His first response. That's not His heart. His heart is to be merciful and gracious, the deepest affection of a father for his children. He's ready to gush forth with love. God's just, God, God is just ready to overflow with love to his children. And, and, and I think it's hard for us to understand that because we're the exactly opposite. 
We're exactly the opposite. And we, 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 we put our understanding of ourselves and of our fellow fallen man upon God because for you and I, we are... Uh, see, for God, He is ready to love and has to be provoked to anger. But we're the exact opposite. We're ready to be angry and have to be provoked to love. The Bible says it. Uh, we have to provoke each other to love and to good works in Hebrews. But God's the exact opposite. God is ready to love. He's just waiting to love. He's overflowing with love. He is loving and gracious. Uh, it, verse number 7 says that He keeps mercy for a thousand. That's, that's just, it, it means He keeps mercy for a thousand generations. And in, in the Hebrew alphabet or, or language, a thousand was the highest number that they had. And so if, if they use a thousand, they basically mean infinite. God says, I've got, I've got mercy for infinite. There is no expiration date, God says, for my mercy and for my grace. It just keeps on going. Now, yes, it does say, and, and as we look at this verse, it does say that he will uh, by no means clear the guilty and he'll visit uh, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children in the third and the fourth generation. And we know that God says in Galatians that he'll not be mocked and that whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And we have to deal with the consequences of sin and, and sometimes it will pass on to generations past us. But God says it's only three or four. What's that compared to a thousand generations, endless generations of his mercy? And so we see in Exodus that God is merciful and gracious. We see the same thing in Isaiah chapter number 30, verse 18. And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. Therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Yes, God is a God of judgment. That's not what he uses to describe himself first. He says he's merciful and he's gracious. Uh, look at Isaiah chapter 55. Oh, I love this. I love this. Isaiah 55, verse number 6. Bible says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. This is God talking to wayward Israel. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, for he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So there's mercy and there's forgiveness. But keep going, because here are two verses, verses 8 and 9, that we use a lot, but I, and, and I think that they're good, and I think the way we use them, it's true, but we don't use them within the context of this passage. Verse number 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways, my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, whenever we read those verses, or at least this is the way I've always read them, I've always thought, okay, God, he's just, he's way past figuring out. God's plan for my life, God's plan for your life, the things that God thinks about, the way that God works, it's, I'm never going to figure it out because God is so much greater and so much higher and has things under control. He's, he's, he's got it all figured out and I'm not going to even worry about it. And I think that's true. I think that's true. But when you take those verses within the context of God's mercy, and His grace, and His forgiveness. What's God saying here? He says, look, I will forgive. I will show mercy. I will have grace. You can't even figure it out. Why? Because that's not how, again, that's not how we operate. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show mercy and grace when you can't even fathom how that's possible, God says. 
God says, I'm going to give you mercy and grace and forgiveness and pardon when you don't think you deserve it because my thoughts and my ways are so much higher than yours. I'm going to show mercy and grace and pardon and compassion and forgiveness even when you don't think there's any way possible that you could be restored because my thoughts and my ways are higher than your thoughts and your, your ways. This, this is the God that we serve. This is, this is the God who loves you. This is the God who loves you. God does not respond. Listen to this. God does not respond to you like you would respond to you. God does not respond to you like you would respond to you. Or like you respond to other people. Uh, God does not uh, respond to me and my sin like I respond to others. Critically. With frustration. Dismissing distancing myself from sin. Wanting nothing to do. When somebody messes up and I think, oh man, they should have known better. I'm so glad God does not treat me that way. I'm so glad that God doesn't look at me and think, are you kidding me? I t- you should have known better. That's not how God operates. Why? Because His ways and His thoughts are so much higher than my ways and my thoughts. God doesn't look at me once I'm in sin and say, well, you got yourself into this mess. I guess you're going to have to figure it out yourself. He doesn't do that. And He doesn't do that with you either. Look at Isaiah chapter number 57, verse 15. Because here we see both, both sides of God. Both, both elements of God. Thus saith the high and lofty one, the high and holy one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. I am as high as you can get. I am as far above everything as you can get. I am as supreme as it gets. But look what he says. With him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The heart, listen to this, okay? The heart, because somebody needs to hear this. The heart of God is not reserved for you when you have it all figured out or when you're all put together. You realize that? God's not waiting for you to get it all figured out before He says, okay, now I'll love you. God's not waiting for you to get it all put together before He says, okay, now, now, now I'll show my grace to you. Now you can see my favor. That's not how God works. God, the heart of God is directed towards us in our lowest and weakest of conditions. Listen, in your weakest moments, when you think you're at your worst, that is when the heart of God is closest to you. That's when the heart of God is drawn to you. In your times of failure, that's when He's right there. Uh, in those times when you feel like you've let Him down, that is when He wants to be closest to you. You realize that? In those times when we think God is farthest from us because of what we've done or, how we've, or what we've not done, and we think, oh, pff, well, so much for God's mercy and grace and love. No, no, no. That's when He's right there. That's when He's right there. That high and lofty one is right there, close to the one that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Look at Jeremiah chapter number 3, verse number 12. It says, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, saith the Lord, 
For I, or I am merciful, saith the Lord, and I will not keep my anger forever. But I lo- know this about God. God is, and I believe this with all my heart, when we're looking, again, when we look at the heart of God, the center of the heart of God is His love. God is mercy. God is compassion. God is grace. God is gentleness. God is love. Yes, God has anger. God can be angry. He, he has anger. He, has, he will give judgment. He will deliver justice. But God never one time says, that's who I am. God never one time says, that is my heart. God is love. Look at, uh, I want to get to, to just a couple more. Look at uh, Hosea chapter number 11. I would encourage you to look up Jeremiah 9.24 in your own time. But look at Hosea 11.9. This is, again, God talking about Israel. A lot of what we read in the Old Testament about God's heart and about His love, He's referring to Israel, His wayward son. Hosea 11.9 says, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. That was a word that God used for Israel. For I am God and not man. God says, I will not destroy because of who I am. Because I'm not you. Because I'm not man. Someone lets us down, we're ready to write them off. When someone, when someone disappoints us, we're ready to just say, okay, fine, I'll find a new friend. When someone, when someone messes up, we're like, all right, well, I'm not going to rely on this person anymore. That's not God. God says, I am God, not man. The Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. Our understanding, again, of God cannot be based on our experience with man because He is not man. This is what we need to understand. The holiness of God, the perfection of God, who who God is, perfect, and the the sinfulness of man, who we are, those are mutually exclusive. They are are total polar opposites. They, They cannot coincide. They cannot exist in the same space together. But this is the wonderful thing about God. Because Jesus Christ, that Holy One, became that sin. He became that sin. Uh, The Holy One became sin, so He knows the horror and destruction of sin better than anyone. And because He is holy, and because He understands the revolting nature of sin, His mercy is drawn out to those who come to Him looking for rescue, those who are His own. He is so high and holy. He understands the the destruction of sin, but He also became sin for you. He also became sin for you. Uh, Listen, again, someone needs to hear this. Jesus sides with you against your sin. Not against you because of your sin. Jesus sides uh, sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. Think about that for a second. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates your sin, but He loves you. That's His heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus describes His heart. Jesus describes His heart. He says, I am gentle, and I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Jesus says at the center, the driving force, the part from which everything else flows, the motivation, the determining factor, the be-all and end-all to what I do is mercy and grace. It is gentleness, meekness, and lowliness. 
Jesus says in John 13, 1, I love this verse. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them to the end. What's the end? When His, when his love gives out? When we reach the expiration date on His love? When we've done something so great that God says, well, that's the end of my love. What's the end? The end of His suffering. The end of the cross. The end of our sin. When our sin was completely paid for. The willingness to do whatever was necessary to complete this work of love for us. Uh, Listen, okay? Understand this. I think sometimes we look at the cross and we think, well, that's just something that Jesus had to do. You know? The, the, oh, the grace, uh, oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. God's love drew salvation's plan, and Jesus drew the short straw and had to go to the cross. Uh-uh. The cross is not something that Jesus had to do. The, the cross is something Jesus wanted to do. Say, so how do we know that? The Bible says in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. See, Jesus loved you to the end. He made sure that he went all the way. He paid for all your sin. He endured all your suffering. He went for all of your hell so you don't have to. He loved you to the end. And then lastly, let me just get into this because we're out of time. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 4. We'll try to catch some of these other ones at another time. But I wanted to make sure we got this. Ephesians 2, 4, the Bible says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us. You realize that there is not one other thing in the entire Bible that God is described as rich in. Only mercy. It's the only thing. God says, I want you to know what I am so wealthy in. I, have, I hold the market in this area. I mean, I, 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 am, I am the corner on mercy. In the currency of mercy, nobody has more than God. God says, I am rich in mercy. It is His first and natural outpouring. It's not judgment or anger. It is love and mercy. It says, but God, who is rich in mercy? Not that He has mercy. God is. That's who He is. That's His being. It's who He is to all sinners. That's who God is. When you see your sin, because in verses 1 through 3, we won't take time to read it, but it shows us our need for Christ. And it shows us that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's why Jesus came. When Christ was not sent to men wounded people, or wake sleepy people, or advise confused people, or inspired bored people, or spur on lazy people, or educate ignorant people, Jesus came to raise dead people. And when we see our sin that way, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, then you see how rich He is in mercy. The things that God is rich in mercy means that, I read this earlier this week, that God is rich in mercy means that the regions of deepest shame and regret in your life are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It's where mercy exists. It's where mercy is. It means the things about you that make you cringe the most make Him hug you the hardest. It means that His mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained. It is sweeping. It is magnanimous. It exists without restraint. It means that our haunting shame is not a problem to Him, but the very thing that He loves most to work with. 
He is rich in mercy. We're out of time, so I'm going to stop there. But I hope that you were able to get a little bit more of a clear glimpse from this about His love. Who He really is. And, what he, and that, that was just barely scratching the surface. But I'd encourage you to think about that this week. Take what you've written down here or take what somebody else wrote down. I don't know. Uh, keep that with you this week. When, you're, when you think, does He love me? Does anybody love me? Would you go back through this? Would you just read it? Would you confirm to yourself that He does?